This morning we continue a series that we started last week called Sola, or Alone. And, and we're looking at some of the foundational truths and foundational doctrines that are under direct attack in our culture today. And we are standing and saying, these are truths that we must hold. These are, are doctrines that are essential not only to, to having a right understanding of God, but that are essential to living for God in this culture and especially with, with several of them that are essential to being able to reach anybody for Christ. Because if we don't understand these, then our witness will be ineffective and we will be unable to reach people that are going to hell all around us. And so these are essential and vital that we study. This morning we, we start with the first solo. And, and I'll just say this up front, we're going to spend at least November on this first one. And, and we're going to spend some time on this. And if... If need be, we'll go longer because it's that important. And sola scriptura, the Bible alone, and the authority of the Bible and the sufficiency of the Bible. And at times we'll be very technical and, and look at what the what doctrine says and, and hopefully at times bring that into real life because last week we said that doctrine matters, that theology matters in how we live and how we view our world in our worldview. And so we'll try to bring both of those in. As we go, you may end up with, with a lot of questions. You may have questions for yourself, or more often, you may have questions that somebody has asked you that you're like, I don't know how to answer that. I encourage you to ask those. Maybe email me or, or on the, the Facebook group, and then we'll include those. That'll give me a chance to include those in upcoming messages. Um, if there's enough of them, we may just take a week just for, for questions. Sort of say, okay, these are some of the questions people have brought up. So I may not answer them on the on Facebook because these type of questions really need a conversation. But I encourage you to be thinking and ask those. I don't know if you've ever seen this bumper sticker. Don, if you could put this bumper sticker up. Ever seen that? God said it. I believe it. That settles it. I'm sort of using this this morning as an introduction. Do you think that's right? I'm s- <laughs> Everyone's like, wait a minute, I really like that one. Now I'm afraid to say anything. It's sort of a gotcha. And, and, and I've said this before, and, and as I was thinking about it, and I would propose that maybe this is, is not doctrinally accurate. Any idea why? Whether or not we believe it has nothing to do with whether did you hear, Kristen? The order is what I have issues with. God said it, and so, and so I believe it, and therefore that settles it. Now I'm adding some words in, but logically that's sort of the order it goes in, right? And that is not what we're going to be talking about today. If we want to think about an order that is biblical, if we want to think about how God would view it, God settles it, or God said it, that settles it, and thus I believe it. You see the difference? And that is how we want to start talking about God's Word. God said it. That settles it. And thus I believe it. Because see, whether or not I believe it has no inclination on whether it's truth. Right? We talked about that last week. God said it. That makes it true. Period. Whether or not I believe it, my choice is just to come along and believe what God has said. 
as you talk to people about the Bible, you know, if you, if you use the phrase, well, the Bible says to someone that doesn't know Christ, what kind of responses do you get? What do people think about the Bible? Fairy tales. Fairy tales, okay. A bunch of nice stories. So, yeah. <laughs> that has no bearing on my life. Outdated. William Shakespeare voted. <laughs> Someone old must have. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Take it as a crutch. They think you're dependent on something you get through life, like alcohol or something. Okay. Good. It's just another book. Maybe it has some good morals to teach us, some good things to say, but just another book. This morning, we start with speaking of the Bible and, and proudly proclaiming it is not just another book. It is the holy, inspired Word of God. And we start here, and, and I believe so many times when we have relationships with non-believers in this world, we need to start here, along with the, uh, understanding a proof for God. But we need to come with some foundation of why we believe the Bible is true. Because if we don't have the Bible as truth, then we have relativism and there's no way to talk to somebody about what is actually true about what God settled. And so as we talk, some of these principles, especially today, are going to be things that every one of you have heard before. They are things that are in our membership class. They are things that are in our Constitution that we as a church hold unashamedly to. But that doesn't mean that we don't talk about them because we've all heard them. In fact, these are important things to rehearse again and to bring back to mind. And so if, if we're talking things that are settled in your mind, that you are sure of, then listen and try to come up with ways to talk to other people about it. Well, okay, what, what kind of argument would work for someone else? Or what kind of statement could I make to under, help someone else understand? If you're here this morning and you're not sure about the Bible, and you haven't heard these things, then I encourage you to think this morning. To, to, to hear what we have to say. To hear what God's Word says. And for the next four or five weeks, as we talk about Scripture and an understanding of it, and to open ourselves to the possibility that perhaps, that perhaps an infinite God that created all things that once relationship with his people, perhaps he chose to write his message to them so they would know him. Perhaps. And that's what over the next four weeks we'll be proving. Last week we, we did a very brief historical sketch. I, I wish we had a lot more time. We could have gone a lot longer to talk about the Reformation and, and all of the things involved there. But if you remember, when we, when we started to talk about the idea of sola scriptura, or God's word alone, scripture alone, where that started to come about was as the reformers noticed things in the church that were not biblical, things like selling indulgences, or buying less time in purgatory, or somehow buying forgiveness, and the abuses of the church, and they started to stand up for that, the church was coming back at them and saying, you're a heretic. You're a heretic. Some of them were being strangled. Some of them were being burned. Some of them were, were being uh, excommunicated and expelled from places they had lived for many years. And, and Martin Luther sort of got the ball rolling on this 
when, when he, he was processing what the Pope was coming back with him at, with. And, and he'd come and, and he'd say, well, that's not what God's Word says. And he'd look through Scripture, and he was a, a student of, of the original languages as well as the Latin, and, and he'd look through Scripture and say, that's not what my Bible says. And he'd come back to the church authority and say, well, that's not what God's Word says. And they would come back and say, that doesn't matter because it's what we say, and we are the church authority. And at that point, the, the early reformers started to realize, no, no, actually there is a priority here, and God wins. And, and so you have some of the reformers standing and saying, if you can convince me Based on Scripture, I will gladly recant. And if you can't, I will not. In standing and risking their lives for the authority of God's Word. See, at that time, the the sole authority was not God's Word. The church would have said, yes, God's Word has authority. But they would have put the authority of God's Word equal with the traditions of the church, equal with the Pope. And so those things all were authority. And actually, since since the, the traditions of the church and the leadership of the church were what was present, they were winning. And people were following what they said rather than what God's Word said. And at the time, they didn't have God's Word in their own language, which made it much more difficult to study God's Word. So out of that historical environment came a strong conviction that that was not what God intended. That the Bible alone is our authority. The Bible alone is God's Word. And so this morning we start with four absolutes about the Bible. In coming weeks we'll look at some proofs for the Bible and some very practical things all the way from texts to archaeology and and different things. But this morning we want to start with the foundation. What, What do we believe about the Bible? You shared what others believe, what others consider true about the Bible, but what do you believe? What do we believe? So we want to proclaim four absolutes about the Bible. Four absolutes about God's Word. The first absolute is the Bible alone is the very Word of God. The Bible alone is the very Word of God. To the right, there's a second blank there. Just put the word inspiration. Inspiration, which is the doctrine that says that the Bible alone is the very Word of God, comes to the question of who wrote it? Who wrote it? And people that think it's just a book will say, well, that was a collection of stories from a bunch of nice men that that wanted to pass on what they believed. Others will will take a much more conspiracy view of it and say that was a, a bunch of stories from some men who were trying to control people. And that was their method of control. But when we say that the Bible alone is the very Word of God, we are saying that those men were not the authors. Yes, they had pen in hand and they wrote down the words, but they were not the originators of the Word. The originator was God Himself. And so we believe that the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, is the divinely inspired Word of God. Turn with me to the familiar passage of 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16. And we'll be looking at a number of passages this morning, so have your Bibles ready. But you might want to keep thumbs where we go because we'll keep coming back to some of the same verses. 2 Timothy 3.16. Paul is instructing Timothy, a young pastor, 
And he's dealing with godlessness in the last days and a culture that has completely abandoned God. And at the end of that chapter, Paul gives a charge to Timothy to hold fast to God's Word. And in verse 16 we read, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. But we focus for, for this point on the first phrase, all Scripture is God-breathed. Some of your translations may say all Scripture is inspired. And that's the, the same word. The, the word for inspired, I think I put the Greek word in your notes, theonoustos, means to breathe out or God-breathed out. God-breathed. Theo being God. Pneuma is a word for, for breath. And so um, it means God-breathed out. And, and sometimes we get confused with inspiration because we use the inspiration differently, don't we? If I say, oh, that inspired me, what am I saying? Motivation. Motivation. Oh, that was so beautiful. It, it warmed my heart. You know, maybe we go see a movie and we're like, oh, that, that inspired me. Maybe it's a, a, a one that our wives would love. And, it's very inspiring. Or maybe some of you actually see sunset, sunrises from time to time. And, and those are inspiring. They're beautiful. It's amazing. And you can watch it and you're like, oh. Artists and songwriters talk about being inspired. Writers talk about being inspired. That's not at all what we're talking about. So let's just get that out of the way. That's how we use the word inspired. That is not how God's word uses inspired. The word here is literally God's breath on or God breathed that He is the originator of every word, every thought, every element of His word. It wasn't just that He put in some nice idea in the authors and they wrote what they wanted. The word God breathed means every word. I don't know if I put this in your notes, but inspiration is the act of God coming onto man through the Holy Spirit and breathing the very words of Scripture, thus moving that man to write exactly what God wanted written. All Scripture is God-breathed. And the Holy Spirit moved through these men to write exactly what He wanted written. Now that's hard for us to understand. Okay, how, how did that actually work? And, and I have a weird illustration. Let's assume that the balloon is God's Word. Or the, the text or the, the, the papyrus that they're writing on. Let's see if I can do this. Having children has greatly improved my balloon blowing up skills. And so let's assume that this is the text. And the straw, let's, let's assume that the straw are the authors. You know, Paul and Peter and, and Moses and some of the authors that wrote God's Word. Now, did they just write what they wanted? No, they didn't. Because then it wouldn't be God's Word, it would be man's Word. And, and over the next few weeks, we'll look at all kinds of proofs of why that, that's actually impossible. Statistically impossible, because that many men agreeing and over 2,000 years and just amazing. But the straw is the author, and they become the conduit by which the breath of God passes, by which the Spirit passes. So if you think of, of holding this up, and I hope I can do this, 
Okay, that's enough before I pass out. <laughs> the, the air, the breath of God, passes through the conduit to, to write His Word. Does that make sense? It, it, it's, it's a silly example, but I think it really helps us understand what the Bible means by God-breathed. What is inspiration? Every word is under divine superintendence. Turn with me to, you might want to keep a thumb at 2 Timothy. We'll be coming back there, but turn over just a few pages to the right to 2 Peter chapter 1. In the 2 Timothy passage, there was the word all. All Scripture is inspired by God. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. Catch that? No prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. It's not them writing the words out of their own mind. They are the conduit. Their personality is affected. Their circumstances are affected. But God is using that. Verse 21, For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And we have the exact same concept in different words, but it helps us understand these men were carried along by the Holy Spirit, but they did not write out of their own will. They spoke from God. And because the words solely originate with God, we can proclaim that this book is solely God's Word. His very Word. And this may seem basic, but this is foundational to everything else. This is His very Word to us. We use two words to describe the, the inspiration that, that we believe God used to write God's, His Word. Verbal plenary inspiration. Got that? Anyone want to describe those for me? No, we're, we're going to do that. Verbal plenary inspiration. In two words, verbal, and, and the, this is a little bit of a, a technical aspect, but it's, it's powerful for us to know these things so we can understand some of the discussions. Verbal inspiration means that God inspired every word. He inspired every word. And you might say, well, why, do, why is that important? Come on. You're, you're, you just needed to fill time this morning, right? No, it's important because one of the beliefs out there right now, one of the ways that the Bible is being discounted is to say, well, God didn't inspire every word. He, he inspired the ideas. Oh, and they're wonderful. And, and, you know, the words, those have, those could be right, they could be wrong, but the idea is what's important. And the idea is what God was trying to, to bring across. And we, we, we reject that. Yes, he was inspiring the ideas, but he inspired the very words, every single one of them. And so verbal inspiration is important in that each word is inspired by God, not just the ideas. God, by his Spirit, guaranteed the authenticity and reliability of every last word, every jot and tittle. So that's the verbal aspect of inspiration. Plenary inspiration is, is the, plenary actually means full or complete. And so when we say we believe in verbal, that's every word, plenary inspiration means that the entirety of God's word is inspired. 
Now, why is this important? Because one of the other challenges is, well, he inspired parts of the Bible, but not all. It's very convenient. See, that would allow us to pick and choose which sections are inspired, which sections are not inspired. Which allows us to make the Bible say whatever we want it to say. So we believe that all of the words in their entirety are inspired. Every part is from God. I have a quote there from Barnhouse, a pastor that, that I just love. But, but one of the, the differences is some will say the Bible contains God's word. And we would say the Bible is God's word. You see the difference? When it just contains God's word, that means it could contain other things as well. And that opens the door to all kinds of heresies. That opens the door really to to humanism where I get to decide what is from God and what is not. In Mark 7.13, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it, but Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he's, he's reprimanding them for not honoring their father and mother, literally financially supporting their father and mother. And he refers back to the Old Testament and says, you're violating the Old Testament. And this is how he says it. Thus you nullify the Word of God. The Word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that, by the way. I added the by the way. That's not inspired. (laughs) And Jesus refers to the entirety of the Old Testament as the Word of God. Not as some nice book. Not as some code for living, but the very living, breathing Word of God. And I know it may seem I'm pounding on the same thing over and over and over again. But we need to get it. And we need to remember it. Think about the act of our Almighty God inspiring His Word, putting His words onto paper so that we would know Him. And this is just the practical side of inspiration. It blows me away. It amazes me that God would care enough to actually reveal Himself to actually put information about him on paper. Most, most other gods, most false gods, they don't do that. They live in secrecy because, the, the, quite frankly, the human leaders that have made them up are using them to control. But God himself has loved us and cared for us so much that he was willing to give us his very words. And through this, we know Him. And we love Him. And instead of a cold, dead set of rituals that we hope will get us into heaven, it's a living, breathing relationship with a God who communicates. So many times we are waiting for God to speak to us in our life. And He already has. Because this isn't a collection of stories. It is His very words. 
written to a people he would love to draw to himself. The Bible alone is the very Word of God. Second absolute about the Bible. The Bible alone is completely without error. The Bible alone is completely without error. To the right, you can write the word inerrancy. Inerrancy. This is another absolute that is under direct attack. Primarily, I believe, because if the Bible is without error, then you have to accept what it says. And so if I can somehow convince you that there's errors in it, if I can somehow convince myself that there's errors in it, then I don't have to be confronted by the truth of sin and a a Christ who came to save us from our sins. And so to a world that doesn't want to follow Christ, this is vital that they prove that the Bible has errors. But we started with inspiration because inspiration leads to the other three that we're talking about. Inspiration leads to inerrancy. In fact, you cannot separate the two. I think I put an A and B in a conclusion there. A, the assertion would be God Himself is truth. God Himself is truth. In Numbers 23.19, we read, God is not a man that He should lie, nor a son of man that He should change His mind. Does He speak and then not act? Does He promise and not fulfill? And we could go all the way through Scripture and see that God is truth. So if God is truth, and B, if the Bible is the very words of God, what conclusion must you come to? That the Bible is truth. Because God's very words being truth would mean that the Bible is truth and completely every word without error. I think I wrote... Statement of faith. The Bible is inerrant in its original authorship in all aspects, including historically, factually, and spiritually. John 17, 17 records the words of Christ. And he says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. And we specify all aspects of of inerrancy, including historically, factually, and spiritually, because one of the attacks today is to say, well, the Bible is is true in areas of faith, in areas that help you live life. But the history and the facts, no, that's not really true. Now, we'll talk about that in, in weeks to come. But we, we firmly hold that the Bible is true in all aspects, including historically, factually, and spiritually. See, what if, what if the historical facts were wrong? And it's the very words of God? What does that tell us about God then? It, it goes places we can't go. Either he's lying, which is against his nature, Or he made a mistake which denies his omniscience and omnipotence. And so logically we can't even go there, but that's where even believing churches are beginning to go. No, the Bible is inerrant in all aspects, including historically, factually, and spiritually. 
We have the word original authorship in there, and I, I want, I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. We can spend a whole semester if we wanted on this. But in our doctrinal statement, we believe that the original authorship, the original manuscripts that these men and women wrote, or men wrote rather, that their original manuscripts were completely without error. Now since then, the scribes have, have copied them and copied them, and so there are some variances in some of the texts that we have. And, and I don't want to go deep into that, but there are no variances that affect doctrine in any way, and basically we're talking maybe missing an and here and there or some minor things. It's also interesting that out of all of the, the texts, historical texts that we have, we have more documentation, more textual evidence, closer to the original authorship for the Bible than any other book written in all of human history. We have texts within 30 years of the New Testament that verify. And so we have a very high, high reliability that the text that we're using is very, very close, if not exact, to the original authorship. But we want to be very clear that we're saying the original authorship is what is inspired, and then the work of God has preserved that. I know that could bring a whole lot of more questions. One book was mentioning as they were describing this as Suppose that the yardstick, there's a normative yardstick at the National Bureau of Standards that, that is based on where, what a yard is. And suppose that that building burned down and that yardstick was burned up. Does that mean that um, we don't know what a yard is anymore? No, because we, we have, based on that standard, we have exact copies that we would still know what a yard is. All would not be lost. Football would still go on at 100 yards. <laughs> One other note that I want to make is the word infallibility. Now, for, for many periods of time, in many books that you read, they'll use inerrancy and infallibility as synonyms that they both mean that this is the complete, accurate Word of God without error in all aspects. Recently, however, to try to water down the parts they don't like or, or to somehow accommodate science, they think, people have begun to use the word infallible to mean simply for issues of faith and practice. And this is what I was talking about, how people have come off of inerrancy and they've come off inerrancy to use the word infallibility because it just sounds so good. Sounds so spiritual. And we hold to inerrancy and infallibility and that they are the same. Literally, the word for infallibility means it cannot fail. And so they're not even using the word right. Proverbs 35 says, Every word of God is flawless. Every Word of God is flawless. There are not only no lies in God's Word, but there are no mistakes. It is the very words of God. It reflects His character. And so the question, because it reflects His character, is, is God ever in error? Absolutely not. Is He omnipotent? Or did He allow errors into it? Is He omniscient? Or did He blow it? Is He not truth? 
And if we don't hold to inerrancy, we cannot hold to those items being the nature and character of God. See, if we take that step and allow parts of God's Word to be in error, and like I said a moment ago, get to pick and choose what is true and what is not true. And there's, there's groups out there, the Jesus Seminar and some other efforts to find the real Jesus. To find what Jesus really said and what the, the authors made up that He said. But as soon as we start doing that, we, we get to pick and choose anywhere in the Bible. And it's like a TV infomercial. You have the found on TV Bible and it, it comes with whiteout and your own pen to add in your own thoughts. And it, it's ridiculous because it's now relative and not absolute. But after centuries of facing the heaviest guns skeptics could throw at it, the Bible has survived. After countless attacks saying, oh no, there's errors, and people defending God's Word and explaining the errors, the Bible has survived. And as of yet, there are no unresolvable issues in God's Word. And there never will be. See, the difficulties people bring up are usually very resolvable. They're bringing up false arguments to try to prove, well, the Bible contradicts itself. Have you heard that? The Bible contradicts itself. No, it doesn't. There are a number of reasons why people come to that conclusion. One is that they assume that two different accounts are contradictory. Classic one. Have you heard the angel argument at the tomb? One of the Gospels says that the disciples came and an angel talked to them and they saw an angel. Another account of the Gospel says they came and they saw two angels. See, God's Word is not true. It has errors. And, and it's silly because I've had people share that with me and, it, and it's silly because it never says he only saw one angel. It would, like, it would be like me going home and saying, you know, I saw Jamie today. And Susie's saying, wow, no one else was at church? It's not how we talk. It's not how they talked. And people use it to try to disprove God's Word. And it's a, it's a ludicrous argument. There's a number of other things like that. So people assume that divergent accounts are contradictory. We also see that people sometimes fail to understand context. They fail to see context. In Psalms, we, we have the, the statement that there, there is no God. The problem is that the phrase before that says, even a fool says there is no God. And so we can take things out of context and say, see, see, and we have to interpret the Bible correctly. There are people that presume that the Bible approves of all that it records. And I say, well, if it's the very Word of God. But there are historical facts that are sin, that, that are recorded, that God had recorded. That doesn't mean He was approving of those sins. When, when He came down on Solomon for having all the polygamy and all the wives and and wives that were away from the faith, he wasn't saying that's what we should do. He was denouncing it. But people sometimes will say, well, oh, it records it. Job is a classic case of that, as we see the arguments of the friends that are recorded as arguments of the friends, not as arguments of God. Some of these we'll dig into more in the weeks to come. But also at times people assume that archaeology and science has found and discovered everything that there is to be found and discovered. 
And so if we haven't found what would confirm God's Word, then God's Word must be an error. And again, it's just not true. They're finding on digs every day and every year things that they thought were wrong in the Bible that all of a sudden, oh, oops, guess it's true. We'll talk about that a little bit later as well. See, if we allow error into God's Word, then we destroy our faith. And we destroy a belief in a God who is faithful. In a God who is trustworthy. And so when we say God's Word is infallible, that should again bring hope to how we live because it tells me that God is true. And God is capable. God hasn't blown it. He is faithful and trustworthy. And that, that is a foundation I can live on. We're going to do one more and then we'll save point four for next week. Point number three, the Bible alone is our ultimate authority. The Bible alone is our ultimate authority. For the word, you can put authority. I know then you have two authorities next to each other, but... We have inspiration, inerrancy, and authority. Not the church leader, not the elder board, not myself, not traditions, not feelings, not a good book. The Bible alone is our sole authority. I love it when I hear one of my kids say, you're not the boss of me. And I just chuckle and teach, and train. So many times we come to God's Word, though, and we say, you're not the boss of me. There are things there that I really don't like, and so I'm choosing not to live with. There are, there are instructions there that, you know what, I, I don't like that, that it says not to be angry for the wrong reasons. I don't like to, that it says to love one another, and, and I don't like that it says not to lust, and so we're just going to ignore those parts and, and really what we come down to is we don't believe it's God's Word, we don't believe it's, it's true, and finally, we don't believe it's a, an authority in our lives. See, we can get to a place where we'll, we'll say, yes, the Bible's true, but it has no impact on my life. It's the so what comment. The so what comment that we hear. The Bible is our ultimate authority. The Bible... I don't know if I have A or B in your notes, but the Bible A is God's direct authority in our lives. It isn't a secondary authority. It doesn't need to be somehow held from us and, and given to us in pieces. It is a direct authority in our lives. And this comes from if the Bible is infallible, if it's inerrant, if it's inspired, if it's absolutely trustworthy in all it teaches then it is the only authority, the final authority, and only divinely intended authority for faith and life. See, if it's not inspired and not inerrant, then it has no power. It isn't an authority. And again, you're probably saying, well, okay, get off your, your soapbox. I know this. But this is where I think we begin to diverge and not put it into practice. Do we really believe it's our authority? 
Do we really believe that when we have issues in real life that this people would say isn't relevant to, that we can go and find our authority in God's Word? Do we really believe that this would help us not sin? That this would help us live a godly life? In Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness... Satan comes to him. And you remember what Jesus used. He went back to Scripture. Jesus, who had all authority, went back to the authority of God's Word. The first one, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. In verse 4, Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And if this is the very Word of God, this is the Word that comes from the mouth of God. Verse 7, Jesus answered him, It is also written, and these are all out of Deuteronomy that he's quoting, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. In verse 10, Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Because Jesus recognized the authority of God's Word and the authority over the evil one. Not just the authority in our lives, but the authority in all things. Point B there is any other authorities are derived. Other authorities are derived. They come from the authority of God's Word. And so other authorities may have an important role. I I, I pray that we as elders here have a role in training and equipping the body. But our authority is derived. It's under the umbrella of God's Word. It is not outside of God's Word. And where there's disagreement, God's Word wins. Every time. Martin Luther, as he was expanding on these doctrines, and after the 95 Theses, the farmers of Germany were in the process of rebelling against their feudal lords. And the peasant war started. They had articles about the right to choose their own pastor, pay a just tithe, very, very much things that were favorable to the Reformation. So they went to Luther and they expected his support. And while he gave sympathy to their cause, he would not support them. And he said he believed God's word. He believed God's word more than the cause. And God's word said that God had established the authority and we were to submit to it in all areas where it did not go against Scripture. And he would not support them. And without getting into a a discussion of, of whether this war was just or not, he was standing and saying, the Bible is my final authority. Even when I really would love to join you in this, the Bible is my final authority. Next week, we'll do point four when we talk about the sufficiency of God's Word. The sufficiency of God's Word. But I pray that as we dig into a study of His very Word, the very revelation that He has given us about Himself, I pray that we love His Word. That we enjoy it. That we understand the validity of it. That we're able to defend it that we take a high view of God's Word. It is not just another book.
as we come to communion. I want to start by reading a passage we don't usually read for communion, but very fitting. In John chapter 1, as John is, is talking about the coming of Christ, and, and he's, he's talking about Him as the Word, as the revelation of God. And in John 1, 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Moving on to verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have, only seen, we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And as we remember our Lord in communion, we are remembering the coming of Jesus Christ, the Word, the revelation of God. We are remembering His authority. We are remembering that He is God and His sacrifice. Let's pray together. Lord God, our Father, as we come to the table, as we take the bread that represents Your body, as we take the juice that represents Your blood that was spilled to gain redemption of our sins, Lord, may we remember that You are the Word. May we not take that lightly. Thank You for revealing Yourself to us. Thank You for by Your grace making it possible for us to spend eternity with You. We don't deserve that, Lord. We can do nothing to deserve that. It is by Your grace and love and mercy. May we focus on You right now. Lord, if there's anything in our lives and our hearts that are not right before You, Help us to take care of it right now. Because to not take care of it would be to, to violate your memory, to violate looking back, to violate your word. Thank you, Lord God. In your name, amen.